And it's time for WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. And almost, well, it stands alone as an interview. It's a good follow-up to my last interview with Dr. John Huber about the tragedy in Las Vegas. It reminds us of so many things, one of them being death is a factor of life. We can fear it or we can accept it. And that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of the hour here on WIP Sunday as we talk with Laura Pritchard, her new book, Making Friends with Death. Good morning, Laura Pritchard. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm my pleasure. Laura, hearing the notion of making friends with death, most people go, no way. <laughs> no kidding. That's why the cover shows the death trying to hand a bowl of popcorn to a movie watching a movie, and she's looking up, hopefully, but uncertain, uncertainly. What led you to write the book? Well, two things happened to me that are not unusual. I think they're going to happen to everyone in life at one point or another. One was that a lot of people around me were dying, and their deaths weren't something that I found comforting or beautiful or wanted for myself. The second thing was that I had a health scare and was diagnosed with something that I thought might mean that the end was near, and I didn't have any good examples of how to make peace with death, and I certainly didn't want to die yet. Um, Many people seem to express that same (laughs) feeling, and so I started putting together a book of all the wisdoms I could find um, from interviews and talks with people and hospice workers and doctors and dying people um, about what advice could they offer about making friends with death, since you're going to have to make some kind of relationship with the inevitable. Well, what's that line? I think it's Dylan Thomas. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. (laughs) Yes. I love that piece of poetry. I quote it in the book. And I say rage all you want, and raging is good. But at some point, um, you're not losing when you die. It's part of life, you know. You've got to take that last breath. Well, there's another song line what the, what doesn't die never was born and we have to remember that too absolutely but your friends when you told them what you were up to did they look at you kind of funny <laughs> i think they rolled their eyes and thought oh boy not another dinner conversation about death <laughs> but actually you know i found um uh, in truth that most people do con- you know enjoy uh, contemplating their death, and I know that sounds crazy, but the way I approach it has been with a lot of spunky fun, in part, I think, because conversations are such a drag, because death and sickness are a drag, but, um, and it can be incredibly painful, but it's the tone of our conversations that could change. I mean, we could laugh a little at our fears or even have some fun thinking about our legacy, what were the most important things we did in our life, or what is left to do, or who? what music do we want around us when we're dying, and what music don't we want, and, and you know, it can be kind of a lively, fun topic, too. Okay. Um, why do you think people fear it, though? Because most people, you ask them about death, they're going to say they fear it. Yes, I did an informal poll, and there's no scientific evidence to back this up, but I asked people what was it about death that they feared. And about a third people said that they died, they feared dying and leaving loved ones who needed them behind. And about a third of the people said that they 
feared the suffering and pain that often, in, you know, in, goes along with death during a decline. And about a third of people feared, you know, the unknown of what comes next, the afterlife or lack thereof, you know, whatever you believe, but um, that it could be fearful too. So I think those are the three major reasons people fear death, but I, I think it's also just very hard to imagine the end of us as we know ourselves on this plane. And um, it's hard to let go of what is known and accept the unknown. As you talk to people about the topic, did you find any difference between the religious and the irreligious? Well, that's, I did. And I think whatever spiritual path you are on will guide you for sure. But I think that's one unique thing about the book is that it, it takes all spiritual traditions, including the lack of one, into consideration. I mean, for example, the Buddhists really have it down. If you're a card-carrying Buddhist, there's really specific instructions on how to die and the death mantra and um, what you can do in the bardo, and, and I found that fascinating. And the same is true for the Jewish tradition and other traditions. Some really good work has been done by um, church leaders. But I wanted a book for I, folks like me, I guess, who um, either – regardless of their faith, still need to make peace. And this is more of a practical how-to book with lists and so on. Or folks who just aren't card-carrying anything and aren't sure what they believe and um, still need to get their stuff in order. So, um, yeah, it does matter, I think, very much what you believe. And, and, and that's going to influence how you approach death, for sure. You think there's a difference, though, too, between our parents and us? I remember when my own parents my mother in particular was talking about what she wanted when she died. My father would say, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I'm going to go first. So it doesn't really matter what you want. And my mother went first. Oh, and so he needed to have that conversation. No. Yeah. Well, I'm glad she was able to talk about her wishes. Um, and I hear that a lot. Some people really do want to talk about it and some just, just don't. The thing is, though, is that makes that hard on other folks around you because they don't know what you want or what type of ceremony or what your medical decisions are and what your preferences are about end-of-life care. So I think talking about it, you know, err on the side of share, I always say. Yeah, I've tried talking about it with my wife because I'm older than she is, which probably means, and I've got some more health problems than she does, so which probably means I'll go first. And I've told her, Cremation, because I don't want to be worm food. Um, <laughs> for the funeral buffet, nothing but desserts, because I'm a sugar addict. And um, there's a piece of music from the musical um, Wicked. The music piece of music is Defying Gravity, is what I want played. Ah, perfect. Um, and she gets all upset with me because she doesn't want to hear it. Um, um. How do you do? What do you do when you're trying to have a conversation? And the other person doesn't want to hear it. Well, I had a mother and son have that same issue. And, and the mother grabbed the son's hands and said, for my Mother's Day gift, I really, I just need you to honor that I re this helps me to talk about it. And I need you to hear me. And out of a gift of love to me, please look me in the eye and listen to my wishes and, you know, accept these documents. She had written down her wishes on paper as well, which is always smart. Um, and I think if you really approach people with that request, that it would really help you, that they might be more willing to do it um, 
because they love you. Because it, it's hard for people. Denial is definitely easier. <laughs> but it's not easier in the long run, you know. So I think you're doing a good thing. Yeah. And I love your choices. Wicked. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, who's the book for? Who do you want to read it? Well, you know, who I would love to have read it are people who are completely healthy, not under duress at whatever stage in their life. And just like you get your oil changed or your teeth cleaned, you take a day to put some stuff in writing just in case. Because as you mentioned on your previous show, when tragedy strikes, you know, you don't think it's it's going to be for you, um, but it might be. And so leaving behind a written document of some of your wishes for loved ones might really, really help their grieving process. Um, so it's partly for young and healthy and people feeling great. Um, but it's also for people who are caregivers, and it's also for people who might have just gotten a bad diagnosis. Um, I had a health scare of my own, and as I mentioned, and I was really thrown into turmoil. I just I wanted to get some things in order, and I don't mean just my advanced directives and will, legal stuff, that's important too, but I wanted to write notes to my kids and and organize a few things and get rid of a few things, and um, I'm glad I did that you know, in my early 30s, really, uh, and continue to do it. So the book is for everyone, I think, Um, young, old, um, dealing with the sickness or caregiving. And it's fun, too. It's spunky and fun. I promise. (laughs) And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Laura Pritchard, author of the new book, Making Friends with Death. It's an important conversation each one of us has to have. Um, Laura, I need you to stay with me because I've got to run a few commercials here. But okay. we'll, be, we'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time, 717. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday going on through till the 8 o'clock hour. My guest this morning, Laura Pritchard, author of the new book, Making Friends with Death. My name's Peter Solomon. Laura, I keep coming back to... Another old saying, man plans and God laughs. And in this case, huh. you can do this planning and you can go all be over tomorrow, whether you've planned or not. So does it really make a difference whether you plan or not, whether you make friends or not? I love that quote as well. <laughs> and it's true that the best thing about life is nothing will turn out the way you thought it, it would. But the book actually talks about that. You know, many people, 75% of Americans say they want to die at home, but almost 75% die in some kind of care facility or ICU area. Um, and so they didn't get what they wanted. You know, their plans got changed on them. And I say in the book, you know, that's not necessarily a failure. That's maybe not bad. Um you just have to be open to the fact that things might not go the way you want. However, you can still plan for what you want. If you want to die at home, for example, surrounded by certain music and people and scents and and foods or whatever, you might get that chance. So it's worth writing down. And the other response I guess I'd have is, for sure, things will go differently than what you want, but um, it really helps the other people in your life. You know, it's really... Um, contingent upon us, I think, to take care of those around us. And I know a lot of people feel a sense of responsibility as they start to decline or die, that they want those around them to be comforted. And um, what could be com- more comforting than getting a list of of 
exactly what you want at your ceremony or your obituary already written with your favorite things in it or um, love letters to all the people who have meant so much to your, you know, in your life. Those kind of things um, take some preparation. They take some work, but you're leaving people. It's such a gift to them. You're leaving them in a much better place. So I think we can, um, you know, assume that our plans will always go awry. And that's that's just part of the whole crazy life. But uh, we can also put some things into place to make it easier and better. Well, I'm just chock full of old sayings to move today. Um, there's, a, there's, there's just another one. Um, funerals aren't for the dead. I mean, when you're gone, you're gone. Rather, funerals are for the living. What do you think about that? I think that's absolutely true. And so if you've helped give some guidance on how you want it to go, if you want it to be a big party with flag football and some beer, that's really different than a solemn ceremony in a in a church perhaps. And so, um, you know, let people know what you want and thereby the, the, the living will enjoy themselves more and probably be able to, um, handle the sadness of your loss with a little more grace or, or joy, even knowing that they did what you wanted. So it, you know, ceremonies are for the living that helps us uh, grieve and start the grieving process at least. This is a real departure in your writing, isn't it, though, this book, Making Friends with Death? I mean, five novels, and suddenly you're writing about death. Yeah, I know. It's, it was very different. For um, I'm a very issue-driven writer. Most of my books take on one particular issue. My novel, Stars Go Blue, for example, takes on the issue of memory and Alzheimer's. And But there's an exciting plot where a man's trying to murder his daughter's killer and all sorts of things. But it's very issue-driven about what is the role of memory in our life. Um, and that's just one example. And then this book doesn't seem so much of a departure then in that the issue here is death and how best to face it with some peace and our chins up and our hearts brave. Um, but I probably would have just kept writing fiction forever, writing my novels, except that I had this health care crisis. And I really thought that I might be dying, you know, in my 30s, far younger than I wanted to. And I thought, I just got to stop writing my novels for a bit and focus on some nonfiction and start to get some ideas together for me. And then that book morphed into this book. Um, so, um, what's that phrase? Uh, invention is born of necessity, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wrote this book cause I needed it. <laughs> How do you begin though? If you, if, if you want to do this, I mean, certainly one thing to do is go buy the book and follow the book, but if you're not going to do that, how do you begin? Um, I think, well, that's what the whole idea of the book is, is to help you walk you through that process because it can seem so big and overwhelming. And so there's all these little what I think are fun step-by-step little activities you can do throughout. Um, but the first thing I think you can do is first think of yourself. What what do you want? And even identify what a good death looks like to you because so many people haven't even thought about that. You know, if you do get a choice, um, what does a good death look like? And for most people, that means they've been fully informed. They know what's happening. People are listening to their dis- their opinions their decisions are being respected and they're comfortable. So one thing is like looking at yourself and what you want. And then I think the other thing is looking at other people around you and um, what can you do for them that will make it easier. And some of that's legal and financial and wills and so on. But I think the more or another important component of that is actually leaving them with a sense of who you are and what they meant to you. And that might involve writing a love letter or making a video 
or um, a, a last beautiful, um, so, you know, if you're a woodworker, making them a last beautiful um, article to remember you by. So there's all things, sorts of things I think we can do for others. Well, but what if you want one thing and the people around you, nope, you, you can't do that. You can't do that. I won't let you. What do you do? Yeah, I, I've part of my book is about the families I've seen, and I'm sure we have all seen this. Families get really torn apart when, for example, one person is religious and the other isn't, or one wants a very serious ceremony and the other doesn't, and or one wants life-sustaining measures for grandma and another person doesn't. And so my book advocates that the, the wishes of the dying person are the most important wishes. They get put into place first. And then everybody else can kind of work around and compromise best they can after that. But I think it's really important. But that's why you have to have them written down, you know, so if you were suddenly, God forbid, but in, in an accident or something, somebody knows what you wanted at least. And they, that gives them a starting point. Do you deal at all with the question of assisted suicide? You're right to go out even if it's not right there, but you know what's coming and you don't want to go there. You know, that's such a big, hot topic, so complicated and so emotionally um, charged. And I'm glad that individual states are taking it on. I think the fifth or sixth state just went ahead and passed legislation for aid in dying or the right to die, it's often called. Um, and there's usually so many safeguards, or there are so many safeguards. I mean, a lot. I don't really buy a lot of the objections that get put up, like people might feel forced into it or they'll feel like they're a burden, so they'll want to do it. You have to get so many doctor's um, notes and notes from psychologists and so on that actually it's a very difficult thing to do. To me, it just seems like a nice backup. And the analogy I always use is, um, I hate flying. <laughs> I hate flying on airplanes. So I always take a clonazepam, a little prescription, you know, sedative um, in my purse, and I never take it. I never actually put it in my mouth because I don't want to take a drug if I don't need to, but I'm always so glad it's there as an option, that it's in my toolbox if I really, you know, get uncomfortable on a long flight. <laughs> so I liken it to that. I think it's always good to have a lot of tools in your toolbox, and um, having that last option um, for people who can make that decision, you know, they're cognizant, they're aware, they have the support of their family and friends and doctor. Um, you know, I think it brings them a lot of comfort. That's what I've heard over and over is they're just glad the law is there to bring, and it brings them comfort. Somehow this feels a little bit like it's turning into a therapy session for me because I'm also remembering my grandmother. She oh. always was terrified that she'd be a burden to her children and grandchildren mm. as she got older and if she ever got sick. She one day had a stroke. And given that terror of being a burden, within three days of the stroke, she was dead. It was like somehow she did, she got her wish not to be a burden. Well, I don't know how you feel about that, and, and I'm curious, but it strikes me as a beautiful thing that she, she, she got what she wanted. Well, I miss because I never got to say goodbye to my grandmother, uh. but um, she got what she wanted, and that's important. And I have an aunt. Um, in her 70s, diagnosed with lung cancer. The doctors wanted to do things, and she said, uh-uh, I've had a good life. Leave me alone. And she went into <laughs> hospice care. 
See, I love that. I think that's somebody taking charge of their own death and saying, you know, and um, just saying, here, I've thought about it, and uh, I'd prefer to have this last good year or, or month or whatever without the chemo or so on. And then other people might say, no, I want the chemo. Give it to me. <laughs> it's all good. It's just my, you know, my hope is that people think about it. So good for your aunt. That's wonderful. People talk about this as being a great adventure, like going from through a door from one room to another. What do you think of that as a metaphor? I like that metaphor. I suggest that people develop a death mantra, which is just something that they want to say or feel at the very last moment uh, of their last breath. It's got to be something short and sweet, of course. But one of my best friend's death mantra is, uh, hello, big mystery. <laughs> so she just wants her last thought to be like, all right, uh, hello, you've been a mystery to me. I had a boss whose mother was dying, and her her mother said to her, why is that door open? The door to the room. Oh. And the door wasn't open. Well, she said, she told her, close the door, because I'm not ready to go. It was, like, <sighs> it was like the door opened for her to leave, and she just wasn't wow. ready to go. But she saw a door that was open that wasn't open. Wow. You hear so many stories like that, and sure, you know, it's, you got to agree, it's a grand and great mystery. A mystery we perpetuate, though, in some level, because we don't talk about it enough, do we? Yeah, I think talking about it takes away the scary part of the mystery. I think it can still feel very glorious and wonderful and beautiful, but, the, you know, some of the darker part is that we don't talk about it, and then we have a hard time talking about it with the very people we should be talking about it with, and then things just get very difficult and tensions rise and everyone's uncomfortable and awkward, and that's not how it should be. I mean, I've just seen so many deaths in my family and friends that um, could have been far more beautiful affairs if people had tried to communicate a little more honestly and bravely, really. It takes a lot of courage. It's commercial time again, Laura Pritchard, author of Making Friends with Death. So you stay with me, and we'll go into the final segment when we come back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. Death living in a whole lot more here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio, the WIP Times, 735. And we're back and into the home stretch of WIP Sunday with Laura Pritchard, author, Making Friends with Death. My name's Peter Solomon. Okay, Laura, I want to go back to something we just started on, and that is how do you begin the discussion? What would you recommend? Um, for, with somebody who is dying or like, as if you're a caregiver, for example? Or? With, with the people who love the people who love the dying person or even the people who are all healthy, and it's time to have the discussion just because. I think, well, there's so many ways to start that conversation. That's a good question. Um, one fun thing to start, I think, is by saying, let's use death as our advisor. I love that phrase. Let's use death as our advisor. And what does the fact that we are know we're going to die, what does that teach us about how we want to live the rest of our life? And that's true if we're 20 or 40 or 60 or 90. Um, yeah. Actually, I think the knowledge of death and awareness of death actually amplifies and clarifies our life in beautiful ways. So that's a nice way to start 
um, the conversation because it talks about hopeful things and what left is there to do and what things should a person do so that their remaining time is the best it can be. Um, I think it's also really great to look someone in the eye and hold their hands and, and, and get their attention in some way and say, you know, it would bring me a lot of peace if we could talk about um, some of the issues that surround dying and um, some of them are practical, some of them are medical, some of them are more heart-centered, and, and just pick one topic per day or per moment. You know, I think it's hard to cram all this stuff in into one visiting session or something, <laughs> but pick what the person most wants to talk about. Um, and really, I think letting the, the person talk about the greatest joys of their life, their greatest accomplishments, starting in a positive place like that really helps then move into more difficult decisions like, well, what happens now? if the chemo is not working, or what do you want for your ceremony? Um, and I think people will be more honest and, and ready to talk about it if they are just got somebody who's there listening. Um, I say in my book that there's many things you can do for someone you love, but the first thing to do is be present and just show up because it's so hard to visit someone in a, in a hospital or in a hospice place and we avoid it, and it's, you know, they're difficult places, but um, if we can do it anyway, and if we can show up and just quietly listen to what they have to say, that's what a gift to give someone. How do you show up, though, when all you want to do is cry? Because I would imagine a lot of people who need to show up want to cry. I know. There's a little bit of tough love in this book, I have to say, which is, um, you know what? Do it. <laughs> Compose yourself out in the hallway, take a big breath, tell yourself, I am doing it for this person because I love them. I'm going to check my own emotions, or I'm not going to start sobbing, and, you know, I'll let them know how I feel, but I'm going to not break down right in front of them. And walk in that room and help them how you can. So, um, yep, a little bit of tough love there. I remember <laughs> when my mother-in-law was dying and in the hospital, and one of the things that impressed me about the hospital was they had something I think comes in the literature of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, mm -hmm. um, a screaming room, a room within a room where you could go and do what you needed to do, and no one would bother you, and you wouldn't be disruptive. That's a fantastic idea, and I love ideas like that. And I, I had to go on several walks where I screamed and raged at the universe when my dad was dying and, uh, and then would go sit by his bedside calmly and hold his hand so that he didn't have to see that. Um, what a good idea because we have to give the dying person – we, we should try to give the dying person a gift of peace and calm because um, they'll, they'll – you know, emotions are contagious if we're – very upset and distraught, they too are going to be upset and distraught. And that's not, that's not good. One thing I want to touch upon that maybe we should have touched upon earlier, and that is what's next after you're gone? Are you truly just not there anymore? It's lights out. It's like a sleep <laughs> that you don't wake up from. Or um, can we learn something from people who have had near-death experiences? Because the literature is pretty clear in that many people have all had the same general experience, who've had near-death experiences. What do you think it is? I'm going to leave that question up to everybody's individual belief because um, talk about a contentious subject, and to me it doesn't really need to be contentious. I think uh, what comes next is a great and grand mystery, and, and many people have a belief system that will guide them through that. 
what I want my book to do actually is, is stay away from that and, and lead you up to your very last breath on earth. And what are the things you can do before that mystery um, that will help you and help others be peaceful during that transition time? Hmm. Because it really fascinates us um, as a society, even though we don't want to talk about it. Um, there's a remake of a movie out now called Flatliners. I remember seeing the original in the 70s. I, mm-hmm. Have you seen it? I have, yes. yes. And they decided to remake it for some reason. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> which, which talks about near-death experiences that people have and then yeah. come back. Yeah. I hope it's a good remake is all. That's why I was chuckling. Um, well, speaking of movies, I just want to throw out one of the things I love most about my book is this fun little ending chapter about the best movies and music and books about death. And it's just a fun little list. And it's very subjective, of course, but I was the author, so I got to pick the ones, the movies and and books and music that I thought were best. But it's a fun chapter, especially for those who care about um, cinema well, or me- Maybe that's a way to start the conversation on family movie night. Pick the right movie. Pick the right movie. Exactly. Harold and Maud is, <laughs> is one. I've got a whole list. Some are very serious. Some are funny. Um, defending your life. The sea inside. There's some really, uh, I, I have a list of about 20 movies that I thought said something intelligent or unique or beautiful about death. Yeah. You, in fact, actually have a Ph.D. from Purdue University, and you teach around the country. What do you teach? I teach creative writing mostly since that's really what I do in my day job is um, I write novels and I write magazine articles for various publications. And so just teaching that up-and-coming generation of writers how to how to get their work out there and finish it up um, – yeah, and so this book again was unusual for me just because it's it's not in my genre and it's not typically what I do write, but as I always say, uh use death as your advisor to leap into new adventures. <laughs> Ever thought about teaching death and dying? You know, I'm developing a class now um with a yoga instructor who helps people die mainly through um breathing exercises and just calm meditations. And we have thought about offering classes at, you know, local hospice places. But um, that's something I'd want to do very carefully. You know, you just don't go barging in and assume you know how to help people. Um, But eventually I'd like to take all the wisdoms I've learned and somehow peacefully offer them to other people um, who might not have the time to read the book or do all the exercises or or homeworks that I offer in the book and, and offer some kind of class like that. I think that's a good idea. What's the next book, Laura Pritchard? For me, I'm writing a play, actually. It's about dirt and soil. I come from an agricultural background, and um, it's called Dirt, a Terra Nova Expedition, based on um, that was the name of the expedition of Robert Scott, his Antarctic expedition. And so I'm kind of retelling that in modern times. I was going to say, how do you write a book? How do you write a play about dirt? Do the worms talk? (laughs) <laughs> there are dancing nematodes. <laughs> a musical. Um, it's <laughs> not quite a musical, but yep, it's going to be pretty funky, funky too. Yeah, let's. I'll, I'll wait to hear about it at the Tony Awards. Oh, thank you. <laughs> what do you want from what people read? You when people read your writing, whether it's the fiction, 
or whether it's making friends with death? Well, what I want is I just heard from a reader. The book just came out, you know, so I haven't gotten that much feedback yet. But I, one friend of mine, an acquaintance really, she's dying of cancer, and it's it's stage four, and there's not much time left. And she got a book just in time, and she said, Laura, I, I had to write and tell you how much it helped me. I wish I had had this book months ago, but at least I have it now. It's just helping me get down my thoughts about everything. And the questions you ask are funny and sweet and or serious and sincere, but the, you're helping me answer everything that's been burbling around in my mind in a really confused way. And um, that gave me a, you know, a beautiful feeling because if I could bring a little bit of peace for people right at a moment of need, you know, that, that feels good. And I also wish, hope that people get out of it what I did, which is by the time I was done writing it, I no longer had panic attacks or just weird moments of like, oh, I can't believe I have to die. I'm totally opposed to it. Um, I, I had let those feelings go. I had come to a place of acceptance. And uh, and it turns out I'm not dying of that diagnosis. It turns out the diagnosis was wrong and I'm healthy. I'll still die, of course. Um, could be today. Could be 20 years from now. But um I'm really glad I did this book for me. I think it brought me a lot of peace. So I hope others have that experience as well. And taking a look at the book by Laura Pritchard, Making Friends with Death, is like having a conversation with a good friend, helping you sort through a whole lot of stuff that you might not otherwise be willing to face. So let me say thank you to Laura Pritchard for today's interview and for the book. Thank you, Laura. Thank you so, thank you so much for having me on. It's my pleasure. And my name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. If you can't, nothing left to say you soon. See you soon. <laughs> Thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and to my wife, Ann Tideman-Solomon, the associate producer of the show. Couldn't do the show without either one of you. Nothing left to say, but see you soon.